five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, space enthusiasts. This week I'm talking to Sita Sonti, who is Boston Consulting Group's global lead for commercial space. She has also previously worked at Raytheon, Sierra Nevada, and SpaceX, besides having been a U.S. diplomat for many years. She's one of the most interesting people I know, and I'm also very happy to have her as an advisor at my venture firm E2MC. Enjoy our conversation. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University, ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast and we'll also put that link in the episode notes and lastly you can follow us on twitter at podcast underscore space hello again everybody it's time for another episode and i'm really thrilled this week because i have one of the members of e2mc's that is my venture fund e2mc's advisory boards with me that's sita santi welcome sita Thank you, Raphael. It's very, very exciting to be joining your podcast for the first time, having been an avid listener until now, and now I get to speak with you, and I'm honored for the opportunity. Yes, and we we actually speak, fortunately, we speak quite often, but this is the first time we speak publicly for the benefit of everybody, hopefully. (laughs) I hope people will agree to that. But anyway, um, I'm just going to start out by asking you, so just like my last guest, uh, you may have seen the last episode, uh, Dr. Pippa Margram, I said I couldn't do her bio any justice. And I'm going to say the same about you. I couldn't do your bio any justice either. So I'm going to do the same thing with you as I did with Pippa. I'm going to ask you to state your own bio. State your biography. I love that. That's a great, great opening salvo. Um, this is well, not an interview, by the way. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, I am. Um, so... I like to describe myself as a space enthusiast, a diplomat, and a mom. And I think you know about all three of those roles that I perform based on, as you said, a lot of the off-the-record conversations you and I have had over the last few months. Um, yep. In those three roles, you know, I've I've been able to develop what has been non-linear and I think potentially even a geometric arc that connects those three roles over time. What do I mean by that? My original career was actually as a career diplomat with the United States Foreign Service with the State Department. I studied international relations and international economics, and I had a real interest in kind of identifying how to create kind of post-conflict stability in conflict zones. As a result of that, I ended up serving as a diplomat representing the United States in a number of Middle East locales where I don't look like what the perception of an American diplomat should look like. 
Um, I spoke Arabic, which confused people even more <laughs> on the other side of the proverbial table. Mm-hmm. But one of the unique facets of some of those Middle East assignments was exposure to the aerospace industry. The facet of the aerospace industry that I was exposed to and developed some knowledge base in tended to be on the kinetic or defense side of aerospace. Mm-hmm. So think fighter jets, precision-guided munitions, um, missile defense systems, these kinds of systems which are traditionally executed by ministries of defense, either in acts of war or in prevention of war, right, peace and security. Mm-hmm, um, I, you know, had an exposure to and developed a, a baseline level of understanding of those articles and how they play a critical role in U.S. foreign policy. And roughly, to, roughly, what year are we talking about? Did you do this kind of work? I would say, I well, I definitely did this kind of work from the get-go in my foreign service career, starting in 2003. Um, I was training in 2002. My first assignment was in Egypt in Cairo, 2003 which was actually as we were concluding major combat operations in Iraq. I went from Cairo to Iraq. I was among the first uh, among the first batches of civilians there um, prior to the establishment of the U.S. Embassy there. And in fact, one of the key things that I did when I was in Iraq was um, setting up the operations for the first U.S. Embassy in Baghdad mm-hmm. over 30 years. I liken that to a startup, except the stakes are much higher the risks mm-hmm. are much greater, including specifically the loss of human life. Mm-hmm. And the similarities are that you just don't really know what the canvas looks like. You have some resources, ample resources, if you're working for the, and representing the United States government. And you're given a really broad, really conceptual mission and told, or you come up with a really broad and conceptual mission and you think, all right, let's just go and run and do this thing. Right. So there's some translatable skill set there, I think. Um, after Iraq, I ended up serving in uh, as the policy advisor for Syria here in the United States. Similarly, engaging with aerospace and defense, understanding the ecosystem of alliances for the United States in maintaining as much security as possible in that region. Mm-hmm. And protecting our U.S. embassy there, which actually ended up coming under attack. And so I ended up spending some time in Damascus as well. After that, went to Libya. Talk about startup number two. We established the first U.S. embassy there in 36 years, not too terribly distinct from Iraq in terms of operations, Um, having resources, developing a conceptual mission that was not technology-based, it's more relationally based, but still having to apply some of those same principles of how do I go and run this? How do I do this? Whom do I trust to be my side-by-side partner in doing this. Um, these kinds of questions and problem-solving opportunities presented themselves over time. Yeah, I can already see, like, if, if we ever have to set up, like, an like a humanities embassy on some planet with extremely hostile aliens, we're, we're going to call on you, basically. <laughs> that, would be, that would be a tremendous honor, first of all. Second of all, I love that you brought that up because what the space enthusiast in me is very closely paying attention to the Artemis program from NASA is -hmm. very closely paying attention to all of the commercial LEO destination parties in the space economy, because what I want them to focus on is exactly that. It's not just how do we, you know, have food on Mars or in the moon or in these various orbital locations, but it's also how do we behave as humans? How do we interact with each other in a manner that is actually in accordance with 
the technology and the ecosystem that we're living in on a day-to-day basis, but we still have to develop methodologies to, to, to send secure transmitted messages, right, to each other as humans and or maybe to other planetary species whom we haven't encountered yet. You have to figure mm-hmm. out how to establish baseline communications methodology that doesn't just depend on the tech, but it depends on the people. So I think for the future of space to be, or space exploration to be really sustainable and meaningful, you do need to have that, the EQ. That's always what I say. You do need to have the EQ to kind of undergird it. So there's a little Mm -hmm. bit of a connective tissue between the diplomatic experience and kind of making sense of what the, you know, the future of space exploration not only could look like, but normatively should look like. Yeah, no, fully, fully agreed. So how has that shift, uh, your shift from sort of being a career diplomat to going into uh, what I understood to be uh, the the private space sector, how has that actually, how did that happen? And and how was that experience going from the government work to the private sector? Um, It's, I mean, going government, private, private government, I think any kind of change is difficult without question. I'd be the first to admit it. And yet, I would say one of the advantages of having been a career diplomat serving, I mean, I've lived in nine countries. That circumstance demands of one to be adaptable. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of a, um, it was both challenging and luckily I had had the benefit of some, you know, preparation in that regard. Um, why? The why really came about on the role of me being a mom. So at some point I became a single mother of two. I was serving in posts where I would have to spend or was would be expected to spend very long periods of time away from my children. And that was just a sacrifice I personally was not willing to make. There's a number of career diplomats who make those sacrifices all the time, people in the military. And I actually had spent time away from my kids up until then. Mm-hmm. But there was a bit of a fork in the personal road that said, okay, I have to determine if, you know, I have a sustainable future as a diplomat and or if there's somewhere else that I can apply this knowledge and skill. And so I explored and was recruited by aerospace kind of at the same time. And I ended up um, essentially doing foreign military and direct commercial sales for Raytheon. More in the kinetic space, more in the articles of, you know, defense transfer space. And yet also engaged in parts of the, what are, currently the space value chain and rocket propulsion. So there was an opportunity to kind of enter the aerospace private sector in a more national security ecosystem and yet learn about how some of these technologies could be applied for either civil or commercial application. And so that ended up giving me a bridge towards future positions in the private sector, namely as a vice president at Sierra Nevada Corporation for International mm-hmm. Business and then as head of human space flight. As well. Okay, cool. And I, I realize, of course, since I cut you off before, we basically interrupted you giving your bio, but that's fine. We can also kind of step through your bio throughout the whole episode. That works as well. So, okay. So um, uh, US uh, Diplomat Corps to Raytheon to Sierra Nevada to SpaceX. Okay, so uh, very different organizations, obviously. Government, um, let's call them, well, certainly in the case of Raytheon, sort of like big traditional defense contractor. Um, Sierra Nevada always thought it was a very interesting company, sort of, you know, family-led, um, yeah, very fascinating company. And then, of course, SpaceX is sort of its animal by itself, I suppose. What are some, are there sort of any interesting contrasts you would like to highlight uh, between these types of companies? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they each have real strengths in how they deliver goods, services, products, and solutions to their various customer bases. And what's interesting is over time, you're seeing the overlap in some of the target. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll start off with, 
I, I won't compare the Foreign Service, the United States government, to aerospace companies because that's that's a pretty big leap. Um, what I will say, though, is in order for the United States economy, which, of course, is what I had been and have been primarily representing, in order for the United States economy to continue to grow, to continue to play a meaningful leadership role in the future of space, broadly speaking, um, there needs to be alignment between what the corporations are making, how they're delivering it to the United States, how they're delivering it to the rest of the world, to the international marketplace. There's mm-hmm. the alignment between what, how, and why. And it's the why piece that I think really um, crystallizes the mission of the United States government and specifically the United States State Department's role in what I would call economic statecraft, right? Mm-hmm. So as a foreign service officer, I was, I had one of many, you know, we tend to have many roles, but one of the roles is actually to provide advocacy for the meaningful, national security-aligned, justifiable transfer of technologies to international customers um, in, you know, depending upon what the nature of the bilateral relationship is like, depending on taxation, depending on, you know, any number of factors. But at the end of the day, what was unique about representing essentially a sales function, a business development function on behalf of the United States government as a diplomat is that you you always were aligned to the mission. It was mission first. And what is the mission? The mission is protecting and representing the American people. Mm-hmm. So there's a great, super inspirational mission that public service has that private industry, you know, attempts to try to rep, um, replicate and is occasionally aligned. So I wanted to, I, you know, highlight what's so special about being, about representing my country as I did. Raytheon, exactly right. Legacy, OEM, prime defense contractor, which itself has gone through so many different incarnations over time, over the last few decades that it's existed. What I've really been inspired by based on my experience at Raytheon was the importance of really looking at the global landscape um, and understanding what the international customer, whether it's a commercial, you know, for commercial purposes or for military purposes, what the customer's need is and developing a bespoke solution around the customer's need. Mm -hmm. That's something that's really unique to Raytheon. And I would say is also maybe the representative of Raytheon's experience with how, how foreign military sales even works. Raytheon is really well experienced even now post-merger with United uh, Technologies Corporation. Mm -hmm. This is just part of their DNA is to know that you have to be aligned with the U.S. government. You cannot provide the same technology to foreign warfighters as you provide to the U.S. warfighter. You just can't, mm-hmm. right? You have, to mm-hmm. develop, you have to develop what are called exportable variants in accordance with the International Trafficking and Arms Regulation, or ITAR. But mm-hmm. as you do that, can you do it in a way that's meaningful, that still faithfully responds to and represents what the customer is looking for, right? Can you thread that needle? That's what Raytheon does exceptionally well. And I learned, you know, I feel honored to have said I learned a lot about not just why, but the how in my time at Raytheon. Moving to Sierra Nevada Corporation, Fox mm-hmm. and Aaron Osman are a delight. I am so, so thrilled to have had a chance to grow with them and really helped grow their international business in a really meaningful way. Um, it started with, Italy, and by it, I mean my tenure there, started with and ended with really tremendous transfers of light attack aircraft, the Super Takano aircraft, to customers as diverse as Nigeria and Lebanon. So really fascinating 
end customers who are prosecuting really important fights in national security that are in alignment with the U.S. government. And mm -hmm. yet, what was really unique about the Sierra Nevada corporate culture is it is exactly as you said, it's a family. And so I also was equally familial, if you will, with my brothers and sisters who are working in the civil aerospace domain on the Dream Chaser program. Mm -hmm. And landscaping and strategizing, you know, the potential for Dream Chaser to lift and land in any nation, what would that take? What would it take for the U.S. government, for the international community of stakeholders, of government stakeholders, to not only want to support that initiative, but to understand why, like that's going to fundamentally grow a, Leo, a commercial Leo economy, isn't it? For mm -hmm. any space plane to lift and land from any nation. So developing that strategy was such a delight for Fatih and Aaron. And I'm so excited to see all the great work that Sierra Space, and since it's been out, which, yeah. you know, no spoiler alert there, it's finally happened. And I'm so proud to have said I've been part of that the ecosystem that led to that to that transaction occurring. So the final chapter, of course, like SpaceX, it is exactly as you would perceive. It is fast. It is agile. It is competitive. It is demanding. It is how can we beat our timelines? How can we sell this and deliver it to the customer faster? And how do we demonstrate the value proposition of having a super high failure tolerance, right? That is what characterizes all of SpaceX's tremendous success. And the willingness to encumber risk is absolutely part of the SpaceX DNA. And, uh, you know, to kind of conclude what feels like a long-winded response, so sorry about that. No that is the... That is the other end of the spectrum from a personal experience standpoint. Being a U.S. diplomat, yes, I personally encumbered risk by living in places like Damascus, Tripoli, Baghdad, and Cairo during war or post-war. But the U.S. government is not about encumbering risk, right? On behalf it's probably, of it's probably about stability more than anything. I would have precisely. So I felt the opportunity to grow tremendously in my time at SpaceX in adapting to a completely new set of standards on failure tolerance. Now, it's interesting, the, the role you ended up in at SpaceX, um, if, I, if I heard you correctly, head of human spaceflight, right? Um, so that, that really didn't have any sort of government angle anymore. That, well, I guess that's not true because you have the, you're flying the astronauts, right? But it sort of seemed removed from the, the military stuff and everything else. Is that something you chose on purpose? Uh, no, that's what SpaceX chose me for, <laughs> interestingly. Um, and I'll say, so, yeah, I, I think to answer the question directly, yes, but we absolutely shaped what is now known as the private astronaut mission or the PAM program by NASA. And mm. it's only through the existence of that private astronaut mission platform that SpaceX is able to provide transportation to the International Space Station or any other destination for sovereign astronauts. Yes, you can go sort of a traditional commercial negotiation route. And, you know, I'm not going to get into like the inside baseball of how we negotiated and with whom we negotiated. But for sure, in order to come up with a shared vision for what the future of human space flight required, it did involve a lot of engagement with governments. So Emirates, Saudi, Australia, ESA, JAXA, mm -hmm. 
these are all my counterparts. I negotiated with all of them in my time at SpaceX and drove and moved the needle so much that, you know, it, it's not going to surprise me if the fruits of my labor pay off in the next coming years and you see SpaceX transporting astronauts from all of those agencies. You'll see that coming up. Mm -hmm. You know, these are very long run strategies that require, that really require a depth touch in navigating what, what your stakeholder, what your counterpart wants and also why they want it. And they also require a lot of emotional intelligence to be able to communicate with that effect. So there was definitely a lot of, lot of government um, engagement, the outputs of which you will see in the coming years. Uh, but separate to that, and I think this is also part of the question you're driving at is, oh boy, was it fun to sell to private citizens? That is, that was an area of real growth for me and super, super exciting. Um, but perhaps not surprisingly, equally required a deft touch and a lot of emotional intelligence and actually empathy to be able to convince and mitigate and constantly communicate with your stakeholders to say, you're about to do the thing that everybody wants to do. We want to bring down the cost economics, the unit economics, mm -hmm. so that this becomes more affordable over time. I'm so grateful that you're willing to be on this journey with us and be willing to be the spearhead, right? The, the first mover, the entry point, the commander to be able to drive that process. Um, of conversations, you know, that was every day, every day in SpaceX, and that was that was a ton of fun. Yeah, and I can sort of imagine sort of various dimensions to that, right? I guess one is just the dimension that, you know, sort of you convey to people that they're going to get the, um, the, the value for spending tens of millions of dollars, which even for very rich people in terms of liquid money is, let's be clear, that's a lot of liquid liquidity to have. Um, but I guess the other interesting question I want to ask you is, um, and I think you may have still been at SpaceX when we had the first sort of um, human flights in recent history, like, you know, Richard Branson going up and then Jeff Bezos. And there was obviously, uh, there was quite a bit of backlash in some media quarters. Did that kind of flow into your conversation with potential clients? Is that something they were concerned about? Is that then something they kind of took on board in a certain way? Sort of, I don't know, maybe it's like, okay, we have to make sure we make our mission meaningful or were there conversations around that? You know, that's a great question. Um, on the first point, on the economics of it, absolutely. Explaining the value proposition of human spaceflight is challenging regardless of how many zeros, but you keep adding zeros and it becomes even more challenging. And so that actually gets to the second part of your question directly, which is on some level, the value proposition is not just money. It's in fact very much about the greater value and being mission oriented. So again, full circle to my experience, having served my nation for almost 18 years, I absolutely delivered that in my conversations with ultra high net worth individuals. And I said, look, being an explorer is not just about the glory right? And yes, there will be that perception. That risk is certainly there. And as you, to your point, Raphael, you saw that play out in certain quarters in the public domain. However, that exploration intrepidness does not need to be defined by how much money you put forward. It doesn't need to be defined by that form of financial legacy, if you will. Mm. And I would convey what other values do we want to deliver as part of shaping this mission? Yes, we can talk about the cool technology, and it is cool. But let's talk about greater humanistic values. Let's talk about diversity. Let's mm -hmm. make sure that the people we take up are diverse in nature. Let's make sure that there's more women 
that get into every single spacecraft. Let's make sure that we are encumbering the unit economics and driving them down so that the future of human spaceflight is accessible to people with disabilities, to people who speak different languages, to people that are committed for space exploration to be not only an affordable, but to be a sustainable practice of the human experience. Those values, you can be an engineer, you know, and have the greatest of ideas, but having the emotional skill to be able to convey and shape those values, that's how we really put meaning behind it and 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 really let that meaning drive why all of the missions took place or were about to take place. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So what what after SpaceX? I mean, how do you follow a position at SpaceX, let alone a position as head of human spaceflight? Honestly, I couldn't I couldn't have gotten a better offer. Um, so think about it. Over the arc of this incredible honored career, I've represented one primary stakeholder or one primary set of stakeholders. The first was literally the American people with great honor. The second was one corporation. The third was a corporation. The fourth was a corporation. The beauty now is running commercial space as a topic for Boston Consulting Group means mm -hmm. I represent all of these stakeholders. And I have the honor of this platform where I can talk about values-based proposition, not value proposition only, right? Not just in terms of quantitative analysis that drives what a total addressable market is, what a customer's um, right to win is in that total addressable market, what the probability of win is, et cetera, which is very much half of what we do in teams for our various customers, mm -hmm. but also the values proposition. Why commercial space or why civil space or why national security space? Why now? Why should customers look at new strategies? Why should they explore international partners? How should they explore international partners? How should they look for financing? Just how you and I, of course, originally got yeah. connected. Thinking about these questions and strategizing with so many different stakeholders is an honor. It's an honor and it is such an opportunity for growth because now I get to actually offer and espouse opinions to so many different CEOs. And I feel honored to say they, they trust our guidance because it's been informed by public service, by all the risks that are required to you know be accounted for, as well as grounded in industry reality. So what I find super interesting about the work you're doing now is, is probably the following that probably a large part of, and correct me if I'm wrong, a large part of your customers are not sort of originally from the space industry. I mean, I'm sure you probably have some aerospace clients like your former employers, but probably many many of your clients are not directly from the space industry, but but maybe corporates uh, yeah, from some other sectors or maybe just uh, general sovereign governments and so forth. So the first question I have is, how much of your assignments or uh, are they generally sort of um, a pull in the sense of that the, the clients come to you instead of like, oh my God, space, I, I got to learn about this. Can you help us? Or is it that you have existing, like, for example, large corporate clients and, and you have to hit them over the head and it's like, guys, space is really important now. There's a lot of stuff going on. You should really learn about this. Let, let us do some work for you. It is all of a D, all of the above. <laughs> Um, by which I mean, yes, we do absolutely have a sort of robust aerospace and defense practice, and those are exactly the kind of companies that I used to work for or represent. Um, we also have a number of sovereign clients as well, which is truly an honor um, to be able to say, you know, 
I'm still fully aligned in representing the United States government. And yet, I have the honor of trusted relationships in former ministers of defense or foreign affairs or members of parliament who come to us and say, we're exploring, expanding what our space strategy is. Can you come and inform us on what some of the goals are, what some of the targets could be, and how we can shape our thing? Um, so that's a real honor. And I think what's super intriguing about this platform, to your point, is consumer goods companies, Coca-Cola, Tide, L'Oreal, Revlon Cosmetics, mm. uh, industrial goods companies, you know, companies like John Deere, or Caterpillar, manufacturing companies, and, and car companies, automotive, Porsche, Volkswagen, Ford, logistics companies, FedEx, GE, all of these companies stand to benefit from leveraging space technology. That is my mantra. That is my, mm -hmm. my refrain. And I put a tagline on it that now a number of the partners at BCG are, they're singing in chorus with me. But my tagline, my, my refrain is space is your supply chain. It needs to be mm -hmm. integrated into your supply chain. For example, companies that are looking to have more um, secure and more resilient connectivity are increasingly looking towards SACCOM. SACCOM that not only leverages historically GEO, but increasingly MEO, and as we all know very recently, LEO platforms, LEO constellations, to be able to provide ultimately multi-orbit connectivity with rapidly evolving terminals, some of which could be ruggedized, some of which could be applied for in-flight connectivity, maritime connectivity, you know, mm -hmm. the tractor connectivity, the list of use cases goes on. But that's space. That requires a, sure. an investment in space technology. And that kind of cutting edge thinking is super exciting when you ground it in the industry reality of here's how you can actually save money by placing these investments in your technology roadmap, by building it into your IRAD or into your CAPAC and actually making it a more resilient aspect of your supply chain for connectivity at your location. Same thing for yeah. oil and gas. Connecting an oil rig in a remote location where fiber is just not available and ensuring that that connectivity is resilient, um, that you can place sensors on infrastructure and those sensors can detect and pick up information and collect it and potentially, if you add AIML on top of it, analyze that data to be able to predict six months from now, here's how we expect this infrastructure to be able to continue to pump. Right. The last three weeks of data mm -hmm. that we collected with this suite of tech gives us this prediction about the next six months of, of oil pumping. And if so, do we need to make any changes to our op to our OPEX? This kind of supply chain thinking is new, it's exciting, and it's super interesting to, exactly as you said, non-space company. And so the mm -hmm. beauty of UCG is we get to now sing the song of space is your supply chain. Earth observation, SATCOM, um, PNT, position navigation timing, and eventually in space industrial and space manufacturing. These kind of core competencies that are core to those of us who know the space value chain are certainly not core competencies to a Porsche or to a John Deere, but may become so over time if they understand and if we, in good faith, explain the unit economics right. To them. So that is super, super interesting. It's challenging. And it is also what I would call a, a thought greenfield exercise, right? Yes. It's like going into Libya after 36 years and being told, make friends, gain trust, identify where our interests overlap, find the financial value, calculate the return on investment, and 
sustain your credibility. There's there's a lot of similarity there, right? Yeah, I, I I could see a similar level of skepticism. I'm sort of just mentally imagining some I don't know like some subdivisional manager at a big corporate who's trying to hit his monthly KPIs, and somebody shows up and talks about space, and we're like, what? What's going exactly. on? Exactly, exactly that. They're like, what? Why do you? Why do I satellite? What? Why do I need to do this? I don't need to do this. I actually just need to get better engineers, right? I mean, there's always a rejoinder or a rebuttal for why a space investment is not necessary, unless you're in the industry like you're me. But if you're not, there's always a rejoinder. Like, I don't need that. That's that's like highfalutin stuff. And then I sing my song and I say, actually, let me explain from a very basic unit economics perspective why I think this actually makes sense for you. But let me ground it in your reality, right? I'm not going to tell you the story of I'm making something really exciting and you're desperately going to want to be a part of it and give you mm. FOMO. FOMO is not a strategy for corporate growth, right? But on the contrary, if you listen to what the customer is looking for, if you actually understand their problems and you think, can space technology be a part of the solution? Can space technology help you meet your ESG targets, right? Can you actually leverage an Earth observation platform to identify more accurately what your carbon emissions are in your locations and then maybe calculate what a reduction plan looks like and then measure it over time. We wouldn't even know about climate change were not for Earth observation. That's right. That's like a common tagline in our industry. So to your point, there's definitely no shortage of hostile audiences. And yet what it takes to alleviate the hostility is listening and telling your story or, or identifying the value proposition in their terms. Not in your own. So you've mentioned some examples of the you know use cases of space technology for for non-space sectors already, like IoT connectivity and so forth. Is there any particular use cases you've seen that you are especially excited about that you want to highlight? All of them. Um, <laughs> too many to mention. <laughs> too many to mention. Exactly. But I'll say the ones that are you know for sure most closely aligned to me um, personally right now are in what are called the space environment management. So space traffic management, space situational awareness, and space treatment. Okay. Those three are sort of the building blocks of what we call space environment, right? Um, those are all really interesting to me. And I know you and I have talked about some of them um, in our previous conversations. They're interesting to me because they have the full span of applications. They are super meaningful for national security. They literally will prevent space war, right? That's what I tell my kids. They're mm-hmm. super meaningful for... Um, civil application. So we will have a much better and more sustainable access to space if we can control the the traffic a little bit better um, and have sort of better technology that will help us identify where various articles are to reduce the probability of a conjunction, um, to reduce the probability of a collision specifically as Mm -hmm. well. And to protect access to space for everyone all companies for all applications moving forward. So that is not dominated or monopolized by any one party. And then finally, we want to keep space clean because we also want to be able to keep Earth clean, right? And so managing and understanding why space situational awareness is actually going to help us protect the Earth's sustainability um, from a very, you know, conceptual but use case standpoint is is very critical to me. So that I'm paying very close attention to who the new entrants are, what kind of solutions they're bringing online, and how they help solve problems for 
other companies, for sovereign governments, and ultimately for for people like you and me. Yeah, it's interesting, and, and and I mean, as you know from from our work together at at the venture fund, we're also very keenly interested in SSA. It's also interesting where just by chance we're recording this on a day when your one of your former employers, Raytheon, announced an acquisition of a. Um, of a British SSA company. So there seems to be quite a few people seeing seeing something important there. Absolutely. Okay. And that is non-trivial. It's super exciting. And I'm 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 for me, it's validation of why that's so important and why it's so exciting for, for us. So we'll definitely keep our eyes on it. Okay, we changed tack a little bit. Um, so from the corporates, which is a super interesting uh, topic, we haven't even talked about the sovereign governments yet, but I suspect that we could go on for hours about that. <laughs> but also just by virtue of everything you're seeing, obviously, also thinking a lot about sort of, I guess, the the larger structure of the space economy. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to ask you a few questions. And um, uh, since since we um, don't have that much time, maybe I'll do like a rapid fire round. Just okay. Ask yeah. Quick questions like, about structure like, yeah. structure of the space structure like of the it. space economy. And it's basically motivated by the fact that right in this in this you know latest iteration of the space economy, right? And um, I think you sometimes say it's like the fourth iteration of um, space exploration. Um, some some people say it's the third but it doesn't matter. It's sort of the latest iteration. And, you know, I think one big thing that's happening is that we are going from a substantially, you know, government-driven sector, but also a sector that had other certain characteristics like, you know, sometimes I even call it like a cottage industry. And what I mean by that is just that the um, the unit numbers tended to be very small. And now we're going into this like type of sector that looks more commercial, right? So still big government presence, but certainly more uh, private players and also unit numbers going up and, and, and there's some other characteristics. So in, in that context, um, in no particular order, some questions. Um, as we are going towards higher unit numbers, hopefully, and the space sector expands, and becomes bigger in many ways. Is the supply chain set up to cope yet? Are we running any risks there? Yes, no, and yes. No, I would say the supply chain is not 100% there yet. And yeah, we are running some risks in the ability to deliver in a sustainable fashion. Um, what I mean by that is, yes, launch has become increasingly commoditized. And so the unit economics are super attractive for all customers, especially the sovereign customers, to the point of your earlier question, but also the commercial ones. But are there enough providers online who have demonstrated successfully, who can make the international launch market more diverse in nature, more com- even more competitive in nature, and meet the demand for constant launch, even in a climate where there's a Russia-Ukraine conflict happening. And the in, you know, you basically take out one major launch provider from that part of the or that piece of the supply chain. Um, that's a challenge. That's a pressure point. And I think the, the solve for that, if any, is more money. <laughs> we need investors coming in with mm-hmm. higher failure tolerances who understand that space technology is capital intensive and ha- requires a high failure tolerance. We need governments coming in and, the, and and having more flexibility in their procurement strategies as well. And by governments, I'm including national security customers and civil customers as well to say we do need more satellite connectivity. We need more proliferation, whether it's in LEO or GEO, but more multi-orbit satellite connectivity solutions. But we need it to happen in a way that allows for the agility for for commercial companies to answer the need, as opposed to just governments using their sort of government-owned, government-operated methodology. So that change also needs to occur. And that will help move the needle from a supply chain perspective as well. So I think a little bit of shift in the economics of Investing in space will actually help move the needle to ensure supply chain resiliency to help meet the demand signals as they come along in a in a more rapid time frame. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, makes sense. So, second question, and I, I apologize, I just realized I wrote down his questions, and now and and, and now I realize we could discuss each one of those probably for an hour or two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm saying I'm saying I'm saying rapid fire rounds. So there we go. So, next question was. Um, do you think with the space assets we already have and, and those which are coming online, um, and here I'm talking upstream, right, hardware, and, um, so the ones that are either already there, like launch vehicle, like satellite constellations with many sensors, like SATCOM constellations, um, are we getting the best use out of those or are we running the risk here that maybe too many people want to be too vertically integrated and we may create non-optimal silos? I'm very much on the latter. I think you're, there is, some people would say there's a trend towards vertical integration. I think it's more like there's a trend towards consolidation because only some companies are capable of vertical integration. Regardless, if it's fully vertically integrated, then yes, capabilities become siloed and unfortunately it doesn't allow for a lot of room for negotiation in the unit economics of the service that you're ultimately trying to provide, right? Mm. So that's not really beneficial to the customer base. Um, I also think, to answer your question, are we using what's the space assets already in existence effectively? Are we maximizing them? No, I don't think we are. Mm. I think some examples are, you know, not all payloads are software for example. Mm -hmm. Um, Not all payloads have that flexibility where you can literally point position and provide service to, whether it's SATCOM or Earth Observation or what have you. Not all of them have that capability on them. Is there a potential to modify satellites that are already in orbit? Yes. You're seeing companies come online that want to do, you know, Mm -hmm. in-service extensions. You're seeing everybody from big times like Northrop to emerging startups like Deorbit offering and exploring these kinds of solutions that will essentially maximize or further add value to existing assets in addition to um, you know proliferating new new assets. I would also argue there's a value based proposition for why we need to provide more extension, life extension for existing space assets. And that's sustainability. You don't want to keep putting more stuff up in space if you can more effectively utilize the stuff that's already up there. Right. So if yeah. that is an area that investors can also pay very close attention to and foster and facilitate, that's only going to move the needle greater for us to be more successful in utilizing space time. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. Third question. Um, workforce for the space sector. Is it a bottleneck? What can we do? It's a huge bottleneck. It is violently undiverse. <laughs> there are there's not enough. And by and diversity comes in many forms. It's gender, it's race, it's nationality. But there's mm-hmm. here's another interesting one that people don't often talk about. It's function. Um, space mm-hmm. investors should also encourage space companies to hire talent who have capabilities other than just building. Right? You That's need true. a workforce that is able to understand the use case application, not just from a technological standpoint, but also from a humanistic standpoint, as crazy as that sounds. Um, You need, you know, stronger economics. You need stronger value propositions that actually meet the need of the demand, as opposed to being entirely driven by the supplier and the supplier's perspective. Um, That would help address, in fact, some of the earlier questions that you were asking, such as supply chain bottleneck. If you have better supply chain resilience focused workforce, you're going to avoid some of those problems. And so having a diversity of functions within the space industry is going to help move that needle, whether you're a startup or you're a large company that dominates. Yeah, I certainly agree on the functions. I and mean, unsurprisingly, um, you know, we really like people who, who know how to sell stuff. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I, 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 I could sell you a car, but I would rather sell you a mission. You know? <laughs> there you go. And, and the last one um, in that rapid fire, quote unquote, rapid fire round, laws and, <laughs> laws and regulations. Are we, are those appropriate or what needs Ooh, to be done? Yes, my favorite. So laws and regulations. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a couple, actually watch the space because I plan to publish an op-ed on a very adjacent topic, which is kind of orbital slot a lot. Um, mm. how, is it, how has it historically been established? Who have the governing bodies been? How has the governance structure been operating for the last few decades? Does it need to change? Yes. How should it change? I have some ideas that will come out, so I'm not going to spoil my, my next piece. But what I will say is the fact of the matter is there is an absolute proliferation in all orbits, but obviously the one that matters the most is lower orbit right now. You're going to need to take some kind of governance-based measures to ensure a sustainable access to space that impacts space traffic, it impacts space debris, it impacts space situational awareness. Mm -hmm. And those are going to be not only driven by the economics, right, like who's investing in these technologies, but also need to be informed by the government. So I actually do think the regulatory structure such as it exists today, both in the United States, but also globally, does need to be updated and, and, and is in desperate need of an update. The other piece from a laws and regulations standpoint that I, well, there's two other pieces that I think one of them is spectrum landing rights is really driving a lot of dynamics for success in the SATCOM segment of the space value chain. If you have the rights, then you can, you know, deliver your service, you can test your service, you can make sure that it works in on that spot, on the map, on the on the globe. That ends up also being a regulatory lever, either in an opportunistic sense or a barrier to entry. And so there may be some room to grow in how spectrum rights are allocated, or at least among the companies who are interested in SATCOM in understanding and working with that a little bit better. Mm. There's some there's some there's some hiccups there that are worth observing. And the final piece I was going to say on regulation is launch. I mean, I mentioned this before. This is something that I was, you know, helping shaping the thinking for Poppy and Aaron at, at Sierra Nevada. Um, and frankly, all launch companies now, there is a move towards, you know, this desire to be able to launch and land on from any launch port on any launch port on the planet. Mm. That's very much controlled by the missile technology control regime, among other statutes, laws, and regulations that control launch vehicles because of the potential dual use purpose. And so is there room to move the needle there? Probably. Um, I, I certainly think that the economics may drive that. And yet the diplomat in me, the one that is absolutely committed to peace and security in me, recognizes that there are always going to be some tensions that need to be managed between why those laws and regulations exist to protect the economies, to preserve industrial growth, and ultimately to protect peace and security and, and serve as an ecosystem to prevent acts of nuclear warfare. I mean, mm. that's that's actually the most important mission of all. And so it certainly has been for me personally. And, you know, is there room to grow? There always is. So I look forward to being and hopefully shaping some of the thinking and in, in how that can be done in a sustainable fashion. Sure. Let's talk a little little bit about um, the financing angle, and you sort of alluded it, to it uh, a few times already, how space is, is financed. And, and you and I got to know each other originally because you published that article on SPACs, um, as you mentioned, and we're going to put that in the show notes because I think it's, it's a great article. So <laughs> let me ask you sort of a very open-ended question. Do, do you think we're financing space in the correct, quote-unquote, correct way right now? Um, no! <laughs> 
So that was a loaded question. That's loaded, exactly. I was like, how do I diplomatically respond? Um, I think the fact that there are new vehicles for space investment or space financing is good. I think that governments are looking through new methodologies to finance space technology is good. I think that the fact that there are still the mixture of venture capital, private equity, sovereign clients, um, and the and you know traditional stock market clients all engaged in various methodologies to finance the development of space technology. That's all good. So keep keep that coming. Let let there be new vehicles. Um, you, you and I talked about one of the premises in our in the the SPAC article that you mentioned is there needs to, the investor class, regardless of where they're coming from, just needs to be more and more aware of the failure tolerance and the timeframes associated with space technology development. And if that's not complementary, let's be let's be careful in how we set up structures for space investing that doesn't actually drive to space technology failure. Right? We don't want to invest and then redeem and then see yeah. a company implode you know so there needs to be some kind of guardrails i think not a regulatory guardrail there just needs to be some greater sort of financial thinking about how investments should be an enabler an enabling function or continue to be an enabling function but not a driver behind the implosion of an emerging space startup for example um, the, and, you know, the one sort of sub-bullet sub I would put in there really pertains to governments. As I said, you're seeing governments think about how they invest and how they procure space technology in new and different ways, which is great. I just There's always room for more agility. There's always room for more flexibility and really arcane bureaucratic regulation, um, whether it comes down to accounting and milestones and, you know, cash flow positivity, fixed, uh, fixed fee, cost plus versus variable rates. As long as those kinds of more flexible methodologies are being explored and deployed, that's also going to enable the coming online of great space technologies. The final thing that I would love to see more of is values-based investment. Let's actually invest in space sustainability as a value. Let's say that that's why we're in this business and then identify which companies are going to deliver the greatest return on investment within that value. Let's do a values proposition and then the value proposition. That's my that's my soapbox. <laughs> yeah, yeah, understood. I'm I'm gonna unfortunately I'm gonna cut this discussion here because we could go on for such a long time just about the finance <laughs> for the financing part. But um uh, let's leave that for for another time. Um, I wanted to also ask you um, because one thing I didn't even expect to talk about today, but I'm so happy you brought it up is um, is when you were mentioning uh, one of your roles being a mom, and that's super interesting. So I wanted to make sure we get that in. So uh, kids and space. Uh, I mean, how what is important? How do you handle that? Is that is that only about inspiring them to, to get a STEM education, or I suspect there's something more there as well, right? What a lovely first of all, thank you for reflecting that back because it is my, as I say, my first job and my most important one. And also what a lovely way to frame it because it is about more than inspiration and STEM education. I think kids are naturally inspired by space. So that's a lever. That's something that we can continue to foster, whether they're in our own children or anybody else's. We should foster. It should actually attract lots of investment scholarships and money from people with ultra high net worth. STEM education for sure. Um, but here's here's how I will ground it in a personal reality. This is probably like the final thing that I'll say because I want to leave on what will feel like a spiritual note. Mm -hmm. I bring spirituality to my conversations with my kids about space. I think about a quote that I'm not, I won't, I won't replicate the quote, but I'll replicate the sentiment from Martin Luther King. 
And it's something about how he described faith. And faith is going up a staircase in the clouds where you can't see what's up above you and you can't see what's behind you anymore. It is being in a position where you have faith that your trajectory, your mission, your purpose, you can't see it. And there may be times when it's so foggy that you think you're going to fall off and you just don't know where you're going. Mm. So there's a very spiritual premise there, right? But faith is what keeps you going nonetheless, right? That's how I ground out my sort of reality as a mom and someone that participates in this incredibly exciting facet of human development is space is a great way to automatically inspire kids. But you can also say it's a great way to address your own fears, right? Look at how much people have been as a species able to conquer our fears and look at what we've done. Look at literally how far we've gone to the moon and beyond, right? That requires a level of faith and spirituality that I would argue kids have access to even greater than we do as adults. And Mm -hmm. so those are the conversations that I have with my kids that make me excited to return to this mission every single day. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There's just so much, so many elements of space, which are great for kids, right? It's, it, yeah, it's, it's the inspiration, but it's like, it's, it's the perseverance, it's the faith, it's the sense of exploration, it's the sense of curiosity, right? Um, Of course, I I suspect you and I are biased, but yeah, Yeah, but you know what? So are kids, and so we should behave more like them in that respect. So that's a good thing. There were so many more things I wanted to ask you, but we are running out of time. So I'm just going to ask you: Is there any sort of parting thoughts you want to leave leave with us? Parting thoughts. Um. Ah. Let's see. I think the parting thoughts really are. Anyone who is interested in investing in space, think about that values-based proposition in addition to the value proposition, because that will help keep us grounded in something that is ethical, right? Sustainable, Mm -hmm. represents humanistic values, and really prioritizes all people instead of just one or two. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we, we ultimately want this to be something that benefits as many members of our species as possible. And so to completely stay aligned with that philosophy throughout, let's always start with the values proposition and then think about the value. Terrific. And my closing note actually would be, you've talked about your your career arc, right? And how you've served different constituencies ranging from, from um, the, the people of the US to various companies, other governments and so forth. And I look at your career and some something tells me actually the, the one role that's missing from your, your career is, is probably being a teacher at some point in time. Obviously you're a teacher to your kids, which is great, but sort of a broader teacher part of your knowledge. And in that regard, I'm very happy as we are both going to be teaching um, the kids at the Space Studies Program of International Space University next week. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Thank you. And I want to thank you for your partnership in that because yes, I think if there's one role that I probably want to sunset in eventually, it is teaching without question. Um, And I'm really excited that you and I will be in Portugal next week, teaching students and getting them as excited about the who, the how, the what kind of money, but then ultimately the why. Um, And so I'm, I'm really, really excited about starting that new chapter and appreciate your partnership in that. Absolutely. Great note, great note to close on and look forward to seeing you next week. Awesome. Thank you, Raphael. Thanks again for Thanks. the opportunity. See you soon. 
And that's a wrap for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. Once more, if you enjoyed this, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. You can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an interesting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. See you for the next episode.